and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. Listeners, I'm always fascinated to learn how authors come to be authors, what led to their desire to pen a novel in the first place, and what life experiences are reflected in their writing. And this is particularly true of my next guest. Michelle Johnston is the author of two novels and an emergency physician. She works as a staff specialist at the Royal Perth Hospital Emergency Department and is also Professor of Emergency Medicine at St John of God Murdoch. If that's not impressive enough, Michelle's debut novel, Dustfall, was awarded the Hachette Queensland Writers' Centre Developing Manuscript Award in 2014. It was later published by UWA Publishing in 2018 and shortlisted in the Mud Literary Debut Novel Prize of 2019. Last year, it will come as no surprise that Michelle's second novel, Tiny Uncertain Miracles, was published by HarperCollins to widespread critical acclaim. Tiny Uncertain Miracles is a tender, funny, sad, sharply drawn novel about family, friendship, faith, love, grief and alchemy. Unsurprisingly set against the backdrop of a large city hospital, this book follows a short period in the life of Marrick, a theology student come hospital chaplain who has lost his faith and how he comes to find it again inside a building filled with brutal realities. It was a joy, listeners, to read this gorgeous novel and I'm so happy to have the chance to speak about it with Michelle on the podcast today. Welcome, Michelle. Oh, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's my pleasure. And congratulations on this beautiful novel. How are you feeling about its reception? I mean, it's been a while since it was published. Yeah, well, it came out in November of last year. um, And it is a funny time when a book comes out. Writers are strange creatures and I think never quite satisfied. Has it sold enough? Uh, You know, it's been lovely to have those amazing reviews, uh, but you read between the lines and do people like it? It's, you know, we're, we're really sadly so strange and fickle and very needy we authors so uh yes look the reception has been amazing I've been extremely surprised and uh, grateful for the reviews I've had it's a hardcover book which is very unusual for Australian fiction there is a thought that Australians don't tend to buy a lot of hardbacks not entirely sure why but maybe I'm a little bit of an experiment see how that goes as well (laughs) but the cover is beautiful Hazel Lamb the designer at HarperCollins has done an extraordinary job until people read the book they might not realize that all those beautiful gold flecks are in fact gut bacteria <laughs> yes indeed now I wanted to talk a little bit about the cover a bit later on and the theme that the cover reflects the theme of the novel of course but before we start talking in depth about this beautiful novel I wondered Michelle if you could give us some insight into why or how you began writing and how you balance this part of your life with your work as a doctor absolutely um so, so a couple of things. How, why write? Why write novels? I've essentially always, in my heart, believed I was a writer. I had the soul of a poet. Uh, being a great reader from day dot, coming out of the womb, and had this real sense that every book that I read that became part of my DNA was kind of a gift to me. And I had this this burning need to to become part of that world rather than just a reader, a, a writer as well, and perhaps give that gift back to others in the sense of of writing novels. And I did have a few things that I needed to explore. Most people, most writers will agree that they really have no idea what their book's about until it's 
completely done and dusted and usually on the shelves and someone else tells them. But they are acts of exploration and deep things that we need to try and understand as as humans. And mine seems to be the, you know, the strange human nature of trying to understand the world, what it means to try and figure out who we are as an individual. Both books seem to have gone down that line in very different paths, but similar, similar theme. They're acts of exploration and beauty. And I think, you know, trying to write literary fiction, it's difficult to know what the actual true definition of literary fiction is, but some would say that it's where the the word, the language, the sentences are just as important as the theme. And I find such beauty in sentences. I love a sentence that will just make me, you know, close the book and sit back and go, well, how did they do that? It's just this innate, almost ineffable sense of joy and beauty to see a beautiful sentence. So I wanted to be able to to create them myself to see what that felt like. And how do I balance being a doctor and a writer? In a word, badly. Um, <laughs> they, I, I would love to say, and people do ask this question a lot. They, you know, so they well, they must kind of complement each other. Uh, you know, you see a lot of humanity, a lot of human stories, and that's certainly true. I certainly see a great deal of humanity at its rawest, its richest in the emergency department. And that is great fodder, anonymized, of course, but great fodder for, for even tiny snippets of a character. So there is a lot that is useful for each other, but mostly, you know, you want your doctors to be orderly and straight-laced and within guardrails, and you want your writers to be completely the opposite, wild and crazy and experimental and creative. So I just find that most of my time is spent having the two people in my head trying not to murder each other. <laughs> oh, I absolutely love that. And yes, we, we can talk a little bit about your fodder <laughs> for your characters a little bit later. Maybe we could talk about it now, I guess. I mean, what inspired you to write Tiny Uncertain Miracles? What was the first idea that came to you that you thought, this is something I have to write about? Yes, well, um, writing Dust for my first novel was in a way a little bit easy because I had no idea what I was doing. It just kind of vomited it out and Oh, okay, that's 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 how that book was meant to be and to grow and to come into the world. And I thought, okay, time for the second novel. And I thought I should know what I was doing. And of course, no, I had no idea. But I, all I knew is that I, I really wanted to use the setting of the basement, the labyrinthine, crazy, strange, higgledy-piggledy, cul-de-sac-y, dead-end, time-shifty basement of a hospital. To, I wanted to use that. There was so much and so many stories within a hospital, so much going on that is really at the root of humanity. And I kept trying to write stories into that setting and failed every time until, and I've said this before, and it's a, bit, a little bit weird that the line like just floated down from the cosmos out of uh, who knows where about the scientist whose job it is to produce proteins from bacteria, which is actually quite a normal job. That's actually <laughs> what some scientists do, biochemical scientists. But he comes into work one day and discovers that his bacteria are producing gold. And it was such a weird line of, well, that is just like no one is going to read that. But it would, you know, just sunk its hooks in and it wouldn't let go. And so I had to try and work out what, what that line meant and what that line meant to me what what did I need to explore and so it ended up being a story about you know fate versus faith and I had to work out who was going to tell it and who better to be the man who believes in science to be the man of God and the flip side the scientist to be going oh I know I think this is fate the fingerprints of fate or oh, could be alchemy it could be you know so I loved having 
those two opposing characters and they allowed the story to play out. And it kind of then allowed the theme to, to carry on. Was it science? Was it magical, strange, mystical, a different realm of a novel? And I really wanted to keep those two things alive the whole time so the book could be read either as with scientific veracity, which it kind of can. I had to do a lot of research. I had to understand CRISPR and genome editing and all those things to be able to make sure that those bacteria might have been able to pull this off in the real world versus, you know, the strange alchemical magic realism type of story. Can you tell me more about gold-producing bacteria? And in the in the context of this novel, you use gold-producing E. coli. Now, it does have its basis in some fact, yeah? It does. And, well, the the most ridiculous thing about that is that I, I never actually Googled can bacteria make gold <laughs> because until the book, oh, it, it was about to go to the final, it was about to go to print. And for reasons that are not clear, I Google it. And guess what? They can. Um, and oh my God, the whole time I could have used this. It was, I was so embarrassed. I had to write to the editor and said, BT dubs, apparently they can do this, but in certain circumstances. Yeah. Uh, and they can't produce it de novo from nothing, but they can concentrate tiny elemental parts of different types of minerals and make it into nuggets. So they just have to have the substrate, which is why, and I won't I won't spoil the story for people who haven't read it, there is there is a way that this can absolutely be true. I mean there is some there's it's it's true with a kind of an elasticness about it. A little bit of disbelief suspended. So, it, so any biochemist listening, right, just kind of don't pick me up on that one. But enough of a truth that you go, okay, yeah, no, that's this is just this is uh this is how it happened. Yeah, fantastic. All right, so I think we've talked around the novel already, but for those who aren't familiar with the novel, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Absolutely. So I guess there are two really, look, it's a book in pairs, really. There are the two main characters, Marek, a chaplain who's not a very good chaplain. He's really having a struggle with with faith. He's had a, a fairly troubled journey to get to where he is. He was a, a payroll officer and was married with a child. And that all went terribly wrong. A lot of a, a breakdown of a marriage, a loss of a child. She doesn't die, by the way, the child. I, I always say the loss. People say she's grieving. She doesn't die. But you'll find that all out later. A really struggling, troubled chaplain and a scientist who's part Indian. His mother is from Agra, this a sort of storied, fabled city. And he has kind of been, it's been infused through his whole life that there is magic afoot. He has the fingerprints of fate upon him. He's due for something magical and amazing to happen to him. So when this happens, he's kind of off and running. And having those deep backgrounds to those people, it's representative society. Why do we believe the things we do? Well, we do because they come after a lifetime of creating these narratives in our head about how the world works. Uh, and that's what, to me, was the big clash between, well, it wasn't a clash because they actually became very close friends and friendship, male friendship for both of them was quite novel and quite um, unique, strange. Uh, and I really enjoyed exploring that burgeoning friendship of quite soft men. So there's that story. But there's also the story then. The other part is is just the frenetic hospital behind them going on with death and tragedy and as the people's most raw, vulnerable moments. And the chaplain was allowed into that as part of his job, a, a doctor of many, many, many 
the power of three years. So I have a lot of those stories and that understanding of human grief and tragedy and the frightening nature of being critically unwell. And so to be able to write about it from not a medical point of view, but a chaplain's point of view was very, it was very rewarding for me to say, okay, well, how would, how would this particular man see the things that I do? There is a doctor in there who about my age and she has margarine colored hair <laughs> and she pops in and out like a cameo and of course she is me and it was quite you know that's my little in joke when you write novels you don't think anyone's gonna you know, no one's gonna publish it and no one's gonna read it so you have all <laughs> sorts of fun so I had all sorts of fun poking her in places and she would just pop up she's doing some writing she's kind of a vehicle for a different part of the story as well. So they're the elements of the story. So where do the miracles come in? I think that's kind of also an important major theme in the book because it's a miracle. You know, we bandy that word around a lot, particularly in medicine. And obviously it has the biblical sense, but I think, you know, it's really kind of this extraordinary, like quite welcome event that's not explicable through the normal laws of science or nature and so it is therefore presumed to have occurred through a divine agency of some sort so there are lots of references to the miraculous and the miracles because of the biblical and then the hospital environment I don't know I haven't really described the book there's a lot they're the main themes of the book but the story is about what the hell is going on with these bacteria producing gold what would happen if that was the case who would want it And it kind of also allowed the huge theme of our contemporary battle with anti-science. So it allowed me to explore those sorts of things, how anti-science has really, as you know, exploded throughout the world and mostly a very dangerous thing. Science is fallible, of course, but the scientific method is vital. And if we we don't believe in the scientific method, then we've got nothing. We're back to the dark ages. I spoke a little bit with you about this before we started recording, but I loved Marek as a character. He was just wonderful. And I said to you that I felt like, you know, in the beginning, he was a bit of a caricature of himself. Then as the novel progressed and we learnt more about him, he became more nuanced. And this enabled us to really deeply connect with him and to be able to understand him better. So I wanted to know, was he inspired by anyone in particular? And how did you manage to get inside his head so completely? Uh, look, it's a great question. He he wasn't inspired by anybody. He's a pastiche of every so many elements of people I've come across in my life. And, you know, I have this you know, that, that line, soft men. I mean, I'm I'm a, a feminist, absolutely. I, but feminism is humanism, believing in equality for all. However, in my, certainly in my workplace, in my world, I'm surrounded by really good men, soft men in the sense of they could be hurt by society, et cetera, in, in many, many ways, often different than female um, issues, but, but, you know, good struggling men. And I wanted to be able to write about a man who also struggled with some of the things perhaps I struggle with and I know others do you know the sense of self-worth not being able to stand up against bigger more oppressive issues around them or people Uh, so I really wanted to to give him those and and give those characteristics to him and let him run with it I'm very much a discover the characters as they go along and I just have to like mold him out of clay blow the characteristics into him let him let him go see how will you respond to these things that come your way and I get you know I I, he was a very beautiful beautiful man but he he kind of laid down and took it 
why would he do that? Why would he just lay down and uh, and let the world essentially walk all over him? Because that's his that was his personality. By the time you're an adult, you're in your forties and fifties. You, you your personality is very much nuanced, complex, but set in many ways, and you behave in certain ways to certain things. So I, I yeah, he he I took characteristics from many different aspects of life to make him what he was. He has his backstory that's written in this kind of structure between the contemporary timeline building up over time. So you understand really why he made the decisions he did at that denouement of the book. So you go, "Uh I kind of get it now why he might behave like that. And I was very fond of him. I like, I like really flawed but lovable uh, characters because they're kind of the best in the world. Now, grief was one of the major themes that you explored so poignantly in this novel. Marek in particular, his grief at the loss of his family, the grief of families who lost loved ones inside the hospital. And obviously, this is something that you have to deal with on a daily basis in your profession. So I wanted to ask you, was it something you specifically wanted to deal with in the context of this novel? I hadn't, but the moment people started dying uh, or (laughs) coming to terrible harm that had to be explored and I realized there was a lot of at once again I talk a lot about this exploring because that's a lot of what writing these sort of novels is about so it just became a natural way to respond you know it's action response action response and how different people would respond differently to those situations Um, and grief is you know, it's such a it was one of these very powerful emotions, powerful influences on people's lives. And I'm always fascinated by how people respond immediately and in the longer term. And immediately, particularly because that's that is my day job to go into the distressed relatives room and have to tell families the worst news of their life, you know, this unexpected horror and watching the the huge spectrum of how people respond from you know rolling on the floor and grabbing at my leg and beating their chest to just like a single flicker of an eyelid when we tell them the news uh, and this stony face and I'm always absolutely fascinated by how differently people respond to terrible news and thinking wow what's wow isn't humanity amazing it's so complex that different people from the same kind of background would behave so differently and respond so differently. Uh, And what's gone beforehand to create that milieu of how they're going to respond. So I just find it, you know, I find humans absolutely endlessly fascinating. Despite Marek's ambivalent relationship with God and his faith crisis, I think Marek sees that there is a place for him in the hospital. So he came to this job and he really didn't know if he was going to be any good at it. Then comes to see that there's a place for him, perhaps, that perhaps he can help these, he can help people, particularly the doctors and the nurses who have to deal with horrendous situations, facing violence and death every day, the kinds of things that, you know, you, you obviously have to deal with. And this got me thinking about how emergency responders actually deal with the trauma they see and experience as part of their work and whether you think hospitals or the public health system in Australia recognise this as an issue and have systems in place to help workers with this. It's a really great question. And in this current zeitgeist of wellness and helping people, understanding moral injury, burnout, et cetera, there's a real recognition that this is a this is our own pandemic now our, of 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 this and particularly coming out of the covid period we talk a lot about 
burnout and difficulty and that moral injury. And there is there is certainly a groundswell of trying to address it, but it's trying from on high. And, you know, it's wellness weeks and it's phone numbers you can ring. And so there's a recognition, but the most important thing that you can have to address these sorts of issues is a top-down culture. So a culture that in in um, invades its tentacles are in absolutely every level of support from seniors down to juniors and having collegiate respectful care for each other on every level and of course those cultures absolutely get set from from the very top but it's you know I think there's a line in the book where I, I, the doctor says there's no point talking about it and we don't want wellness we don't want yoga we don't want phone numbers we can ring we want society fixed so there's that other issue, you know, when there are, there's so much inequity and horror and terrible stuff that goes on that until that kind of is fixed, the root, the root problem is, is there. It's all, it's there. Uh, and that's continuing to infuse our workplace. However, the key is actually support at every level as you walk through a department. It's saying hello, it's being inclusive, it's saying you belong, we've all got the same mission. And the moment that society gets on board with that is if we have community and the health system in that with that sort of same cultural belief that we're in this together, we're all in this for, for good health, that's the key. That's going to be the key where we all kind of are on the same page and it's not adversarial. Being adversarial in such a difficult environment is is a killer it's it's the it's the giant killer yeah I think the doctor in this book says something to Marek along the lines of all that they are doing is patching people up and sending them back out again as you say there are those deeper issues that need to be addressed it was a really poignant and very hard-hitting line I think it was an opportunity for me to have my <laughs> my little uh my little personal rant <laughs> We often read novels, not just for the story and the entertainment, but to learn something, learn something about a different life, different yeah. person's life. And that was my my opportunity to go, hey, you know, this is, this is, it's not necessarily, it's partly health literacy. It's about the literacy of understanding systems and health systems and what goes on. Yeah. Uh, and that was my little bit of, you know, activism in there, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> now, as mentioned, after what happened with Marek's family, he has a troubled relationship with God and his faith. Many years before, he'd made a Faustian bargain with God, but he feels that he can no longer live up to it. His faith has deserted him. And so when Hugo tells Marek he believes his, his bacteria have begun to produce gold, there are many who are sceptical, including Hugo's own wife, Vivian. But Marek has seen it with his own eyes. And I think it's fair to say that he's not entirely convinced, but he has to make the leap of faith in the face of something intrinsically scientific. So can you talk to us about this dichotomy between science and faith and why you wanted to explore it in the novel? Oh, I love that. I mean, and I really did want to explore it. As mentioned before, you know, the scientific method is absolutely king. But the problem with science is that there are no unassailable truths. The point of science is this dogged search to disprove oneself so there are no truth. There are, science is really just trying to to break truth and to disprove things. That's what pushing pushing uh, science forward is. So the point about understanding or respecting science is kind of a very complicated one. There's this term called scientism, and it gets mentioned in the book, and it's this. It, it's it's kind of a strange term, but it means that everything in this 
incredibly complicated, nuanced world, if we try and distill everything down to the scientific facts that we know, we miss out on a great deal of understanding and context. It's just saying that everything we we as humans with our kind of small brains, uh, relatively amazing brains, but small in that we still, there are lots of things that we can't understand. Everything still that happens is possibly if we had another billion years, we might be able to understand everything in the context of a scientific explanation, but we can't now. And to just to then to negate the influence of the humanities and what it means to be human is kind of fallacious in a way, or it, it perhaps creates false beliefs in itself. So it's allowing humanities to round out science without losing track of the scientific method of doing things. So I find I find that fascinating. And of course, the anti-science movement, I just watch wide-eyed, but trying to understand it, trying to understand why people now are so free to dismiss scientific fact. And it seems to only be gathering momentum. And some of it is is understandable why people might do that because science is it's not flawed but it's it's imperfect the sign and we change we change our mind in science because the science always progresses it always moves on but if you don't really understand the scientific method you will interpret that as well they didn't know what they were talking about the first time why did they say different things about the vaccine in the end of 2022 versus 2022 that must have mean they were wrong instead of really really trying to understand the scientific method. And of course, then there's the human biases. And we want the world to, to behave the way that our narrative tells us the world should behave. And so we create our own set of facts. If you like, I'm doing air quotes here. You won't be able to see any about facts, like alternate facts, to fit the narrative of the world. And that's contagious, obviously, in this current climate of social media. And it's easy. We, we have human biases because they're easier. It just makes life easier if we've got a bias. It means that we we get to a, a decision quicker. It, it it conforms to our own uh, our own way we see the world. So in fact, biases are you know they, they they're probably evolutionarily quite useful, but they're not useful when it comes to hugely complex scientific issues. So it just I find that whole thing fascinating. And I as I get older, I really am trying to hold people's beliefs and hearts tenderly you know and say I I kind of get it I kind of understand why you might have trouble understanding science so I think scientific literacy is really important which we do not have and we don't don't even have it in you know there's a whole lot of doctors who don't even have it um, as you'll see from some fairly impressive social media disinformation ecosystems Shell, that belief in magic and miracles or faith in something bigger than what science can explain is a way for people to cope with the inexplicable? Unquestionably, unquestionably. Why are there so many different religions in the world? Why do we have rituals? Absolutely. There's so much inexplicable yet. And as I say, when I say, yeah, and we're talking a long time before everything will be explicable, maybe never. Um, I don't know. But we all have to try and grapple with the inexplicable and where more likely is that going to happen when it's in, in a hospital with critical illness, things as the human body as well as the human mind is so infinitely complex. Not, they never behave really as though, as we understand it in our very simplistic way of understanding things in Western medicine. So we often 
uh, resort to you know calling things miraculous or miracles or uh, and and then creating our own story around it why ah oh, well it's because I it was karma it was something I did it was bad or good or I do it all the time too you know it's just it's like human nature we're beautiful and flawed and it's so complex and absurd and marvelous so we talked a little bit about the cover of your book before, and as you said, it's very unusual for a work of fiction in Australia to be published in hardcover, but your cover is just gorgeous, and it, you know, and it reflects gold as a central theme of your book, and it's also replicated on the cover, represented by tiny particles in gold foil on a white hardcover. How did you feel about it when you first saw it? Oh, I was, I was absolutely blown away. Authors get very little seen in their covers, but this one just sprang this full page on my uh, on my computer and an email with the publishing. Do you like it? And they're oh my god! I look, I just cried. I because I had no no concept of what the cover might be, uh, none whatsoever. So it was just such a surprise, and I love everything about it, particularly the uh, the lowercase font that just kind of appears out. It's not even written. It's not outlined. It's just and I love the lowercase and I love the endorsement quotes just swimming around in there. It's it's really inspired. I think it's it's absolutely, and the, the colour changes with the different light. It goes from like brassy bronze through to, uh, to gold through to yellow. It's wild. Yeah, so no, I, I absolutely love it. I don't, you know, will the market will decide whether they want to buy it or not I hope they do uh it's really important <laughs> to buy books and not just my books but all books because we're all kind of struggling to you know to keep keep being published certainly to make a living and uh, people aren't buying books uh, who knows where that goes in the future this is with a huge investment by HarperCollins Fourth Estate my incredible publisher Catherine Mill and the entire team my greatest hope is that I'll do them and the reader justice um, with with the book the way it is. Yeah. It's hard, you know. Those things are completely out of your hand. You write the book, as I said, honestly, I wrote the book thinking, no, who is going to read this? Which is very liberating to have that, but then it's kind of becomes a an object on the market, and you need to sort of participate in the market forces, if you like. But if you, I want to be read, uh, I need to be bought. Um, not I, uh, it's not me, <laughs> it's my back, it's the work. And it's kind of important to really separate them out. This is, you know, if it's a bad review, whatever, it's not, this is not a reflection on me. It's my, it's the work. Mm. Uh, so I really try and divorce those things so I don't get too, and I never look at good reads because that's scary. Michelle, if there was one thing that you would like readers to take away from this novel, what would it be? I guess there's two things. I would hope that they are able to be immersed in these really important issues but also in 300 pages of entertainment and just and and words and language and they 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 have a sense of like exquisite joy just to be inside a book and they want to stay there because they they go with the story and they come out perhaps having a maybe they've never read a story about a failed chaplain and they talk about empathy and walking in somebody else's shoes and fiction being one of the best ways to do it and they go wow what what would that be like to be in that hospital and maybe having 
uh, some some empathy for what goes on in those environments and the people that need to to kind of front up and and, uh, and walk through those corridors. So I guess yeah, that's perhaps it. Yeah, fantastic. So moving away from the novel for a moment, I wondered if you could talk us through your path to publication, Michelle. So Dustfall was a uh, is, that's a book partly about medical error, but it's set up in the uh, asbestos mines of Wishanoon, which is a place and a circumstance, a, a slice of Australian history that's hardly been written about. It's hardly been written about because a lot of the stuff has been kind of covered up and, uh, and uh, hidden away. The medical error was how the book started to take form and I was trying to explore what it feels like when a doctor makes a mistake that costs a life and how the fallout from that and how careers can be derailed and lives destroyed. But then because I sent, I had a doctor who made a terrible error in the novel and I sent her up to the armpit of the world the, the this crumbling ruin of a hospital up in Wishanome and then I, I just I didn't think too much wrong actually you know what if I'm going to use that setting I have to do the story justice so there's two timelines and really then there's the contemporary time during the asbestos um, mining period in Wishanome which was 23 years the mines closed in 1966 and um, so the theme of that book kind of became this juxtaposition between what happens when an individual makes a mistake that costs a life versus a corporation and a government and how they behave very differently it's kind of a nested novel it's a bit complex it's far too ambitious for a first novel oh, my goodness um uh, and it's kind of really the story that Lou the main character who made this error is writing the story that's the retrospective story set in the um, real time which is why there's kind of a bit of magic realism that goes on in that one because it's a story being written by her and hers is a much more dour kind of real black and white story. There was a bit of time between being awarded the Hachette Queensland Writers Centre Manuscript Development Award and and the book coming out because it was terrible <laughs> the book you know my drafts were terrible and I didn't realize it at the time you just you think you should be able to write and there's a lot of craft to learn so that's you know it's like they talk about you know the, the trope about job interview I notice what's that gap between those years of 2014 and 2018 uh, and mum says a lot of rewriting <laughs> well that therein explains the gap and it, and it was eventually picked up by UWA Publishing. It was. I was really fortunate. Terry Ann White was the uh, masthead, the queen, the empress of uh, UWA Publishing, an incredible publisher, incredible pedigree as a publisher. I'd sent her a copy through my agent, an earlier version, and she kind of called me into her office, and it was honestly like a school mom telling off her. A, a you know a kid who's like late to class and there was I think there was some eye rolling going on and she just like sent me away to, to rewrite it uh and anyway I did and came back to her and she goes oh, this is this is okay <laughs> yeah, Terry Ann's not one for enormous praise but when she does you know you know you've done something good she's an amazing she's she's a phenomenon 
her new imprint Upswell is quite an extraordinary collection of literature. She just goes from strength to strength. So UWA Publishing was fabulous, small publisher. I had a very, uh, because it was small, independent, it was very uh, intimate, uh, very rewarding, very nice way to enter the publishing world, I think. It cushioned me uh, and now I'm I'm with the grown-ups now. <laughs> you are Collins, fourth estate, <laughs> like a dream publisher. And that's Catherine Milne, who I could repeat all of those things that I said about Terry Ann. Plus, plus, she's just a phenomenal you know, star in the firmament of, of Australian literature, certainly literary fiction. She's just, she's goddess. Michelle, given your experiences, I wondered if you had any advice for the many writers out there who listen to this podcast, maybe top three tips perhaps. Aha, okay. The publishing world is really, really tough and fickle. There are many, many, many people writing books and there are not that many people buying books and the equation just just doesn't add up anymore. So it's really, really tough, but not impossible. It's hard work and never giving up. I think giving your, uh, having trusted people who can give you feedback. Feedback is the probably the biggest way to continue to improve to a level that's going to get you a publishable book. And there are many, many different ways of getting feedback, including your own self. And I I have this thing about, I have to learn, I had to learn to read my own work as a reader instead of just as a writer and say, look, I'm a, you know, I'm a, and I'm an accomplished reader because I read so much. So I need to look at my own work as through the eyes of a reader to get my own feedback. But then having trusted people who you who hold your you hold your own heart fairly gently, but tell you where things aren't working. The other thing I would say, look, uh, you know, I I, I don't write in, in genre fiction, and it's not necessarily always the case, but just this having an allergy to the cliche. And that's not just cliched in like metaphors or similes or use of adjectives or whatever, but but just it, if you've read it before, it's a cliche. So just practicing coming up with new things, fresh metaphors, fresh ways of describing things. The way that I now understand how to write well is three things, which is to see things anew, to think of things anew, and to write things in new, new ways. And that is the key to great writing uh, because that will always take you to new creative territories and that's really what people want and certainly there are you know there are story structures certainly with amazing genre fiction you know crime and romance which is you know people people want those stories but within that there needs to be new and fresh stuff and you can get that on your daily walk with your notebook and just just once you practice it's a, a real skill to be able to see things and you and then and then once you start seeing that everywhere and then everything becomes fresh and interesting uh and will keep the reader's interest i have no idea I, that was probably about three thousand things all in once for my three tips i don't know <laughs> well done i love it thank you so much <laughs> heaven knows how you find the time but michelle are you working on something else at the moment i am i am working on something else i'm very very excited about it Look, I have a two-book deal from HarperCollins Fourth State, which I'm, you know, forever grateful for. I had thought I was going to write nonfiction. I spent a year writing a nonfiction book, and there are elements that are going to be so important going forward, but I don't think that's going to be my next, um, like, on-the-shelf book. There's more noveling in me, and there are things that one can say in novels that one can't say in nonfiction. There's a much greater depth, I think, you, you can, because it's through through characters and through this, you know, this wonderful human condition uh, and you can take truths to much 
deeper places that I think you can even with nonfiction, which risks skimming over, you know, the deepest of all things. So, yeah, I, I think I'm going to call myself a novelist now. I don't know if you can after two novels, but I'll, I'll give it a crack. And after just... one. Great. Good. Okay. <laughs> then I'm a novelist. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I'm, I'm working on a novel, which I'm so in love with. I just, you know, it, it keeps me, it's keeping me up at night. Wonderful. I can't wait to hear more about that in the fullness of time. Now, Michelle, if listeners wanted to connect with you and to learn more about your books, how can they do that? I have a, I think I've got a website. I think I do have a website. It does get ignored, but there's a contact on that Michelle Johnston. I don't know. What is it? Am I, what am I? MichelleJohnston.com.au? Possibly. I don't know. I'm on Twitter. I love Twitter. I'm a big Twitter fan. I will grieve if it goes under. Eletherius, E-L-E-Y-T-H-E-R-I-U-S is my handle. There's a long story behind that name, which I shall not go into now. It's slightly embarrassing. And Instagram, Michelle Johnston, author. Please, 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 if you, you know, if you don't read my books, let me know. If you do read my books, let me know. I love, you know, just it, the point of writing is to be read, is to communicate, is to have your writing read. So I love, I love, love to hear from people. Michelle, I have read and loved Tiny Uncertain Miracles, and I'm sure many listeners out there will too. I wish you every success with your writing, and thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinetonellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.